on me. Um, Gary is away, and this morning, I'd like to start with a guy you've probably never heard of before. His name is Alphonse Panot, or Panod, or something like that. I'm not French. If I was French, I'd have a ridiculous accent, but this guy was uh, 1870s in France. He was a toy maker, and he made some pretty interesting toys, and the one that... uh, in particular, he got kind of famous for was this little helicopter or what they called a planophore. And this is sort of a modern replica of that. And he, um, remember this is 1870s. The biggest engine you could get, the most powerful engine, was powered by steam, which uh, if you wanted to make something fly, steam power is probably not the way to go. But he thought you could store energy in a band of rubber and I thought I'd give you a quick demonstration of Mr. Pano's 1871 planophore. Now, I'm going to let this thing go. Now, you people in the back, you're the ones who need to be alert, okay? Safety regulations mandate that if this comes near you, that you should scream and flail your arms randomly. Are you guys ready? This is going to be spectacular. You might learn why you've never heard of Alphonse Pano. Ready? You Ready? The 1871 planophore, Alphonse Prenot. Let me tell you a little about this gizmo, because as much as we're making fun of a French person, which um, really isn't very nice to do, but um, this was a very popular toy at the time, and Alphonse didn't come up with this because he wanted to be a toy maker. Alphonse was crippled. He had a bad hip, and he wasn't able to walk, and he would sit in France, and he would watch hawks soar, and he wanted to be free of his hip, and he wanted to fly like a hawk. And so he started dreaming of flying. He started building toys as a way to learn about aeronautics, which were a very popular thing. Um, He wanted to be able to fly, and he started with storing power in a rubber band, uh, which is very clever on his part, to be honest. And I grew up playing with all sorts of balsa wood gliders like this. Um, Toys paid the bills, but making a giant one of these did not. And so what he did is he wanted to fly. Now, flying is relatively easy. Landing is a little harder. And the the real trick to flying is powered flight. I've seen drunken frat boys make an inner tube behind a boat fly uh, for a short period of time. But powering a flight is very difficult. And a rubber band is maybe not the most practical way to do this. But Alphonse had a dream. Now, he tried to take this toy and different versions of it, and sell it to investors to make, and this is going to sound ridiculous and feel free to laugh, but a full-sized, man-capable planophore, a rubber band-powered airplane that you could sit in and fly like a hawk. Surprisingly, maybe because of demonstrations like the one I just put on, he had a hard time convincing investors that this was a good way to risk your money. And so we'll leave Alphonse on the side for a minute and turn at the same time period, 1870, about 6,000 miles westward to Ohio. And in Ohio in 1870, there was a church bishop. And the church bishop had boys. And he was looking for a toy to inspire his young boys, a positive toy, something that would have a good impact on his boys. And he ended up buying a planophore from Alphonse Pinot. And you know what? That bishop wanted to inspire his boys, and that bishop was right. It did. What does that have to do with anything? Well, Alphonse, the bishop in Ohio, a rubber band-powered helicopter, 
We'll get back to that. But I want to turn your attention now to a slideshow. Last three weeks, we've had guests from Macau staying with us. Uh, you've been in church the last couple of weeks. You got to hear some absolutely marvelous testimonies. And when we had, we had a series of meetings with four churches, the Great Love Church, the Great Hope Church, the Great Praise Church, and a church from Oregon, Pine Baptist Church. They weren't here on Sunday, but we had a series of four meetings during the week with these five churches, our church included. And the first night, we shared kind of a little bit about our churches. And so we had little slideshows, and we had a meal together. It was very fun, but it was very interesting. Something struck me extraordinarily powerfully that night. The Americans, we all did little PowerPoints. And the American slideshows are very similar. Uh, I got up. Uh, I'd, I'd made a little slideshow. I shared it with the elders. They said, yeah, that looks fine. We gave it. Everybody said, nodded their heads, said, yeah, that's fine. Pine Baptist got up. Pretty much the same slideshow. And what it was, we had pictures of the town. We had pictures of the church building. We had little facts and figures about our city and what people did and what the jobs were and, you know, what we do and outside of stuff. We had little slides about our statement of faith and what we believe in as a church and tried to explain, you know, on a slideshow in 10 seconds or so what, what our church is about. If I showed it to you right now, you'd say, yeah, that was normal. You'd nod your head and go, yeah, nice pictures, good job. You wouldn't think anything odd about it. Until you saw the slideshows from the people from Macau. Now, the Macau churches were completely different. They had pictures of people, baptisms, celebrations, people, parties, people, 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 people. This struck me. One of the most interesting or most important things I think we can get out of anything is to learn from one another. We had friends from Macau come to us, and we can learn from that, because I believe that our Macau brethren are a little more, have a little more understanding of what it means to be the church, that they have a little more of a bigger picture of how important salvation is or a little more expressive of their salvation, that our churches perhaps are a little too American. What I mean by that is we're a little inward-focused. America is a very inward-focused kind of thing, that we, we were, we're about the individual. And that's very American, and that's good in a political context. But being worried about the individual might not be the best thing in a church context. That our friends from Macau might be a little more expressive about what I'll call the joy of salvation. And I think we should be working on that. And we're going to start today. Which takes me to the central question. If you're taking notes, now would be a good time to start writing some things. The central question of today is, what is the role, it's not the only one, but for purposes of a text, what is the role of a believer in a community? What is the role of the believer in a community? To answer that, we're going to take a look at a section of text that Dave read for us a little while ago, which is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And Dave read kind of the, the lead up into that, and uh, we're going to focus on just this one verse today. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are already doing. Let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can meet. We thank you so much for your word and the language that we can understand easily. We thank you this morning that we're able to meet in freedom, in a comfortable place, and we have no fear of police or the government interfering with our worship of you this morning, Father. 
I ask that you would, by your spirit, you would take my words and lend them wings, and that your word, Father, would penetrate each one of our hearts this morning, and we would leave here closer to you and closer to one another than we are right now. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our perfect Lord and our Savior. Amen. Okay, First Thessalonians. Uh, context is everything. Context is very important. So let me take a few minutes or two uh, to talk about what the context of 1 Thessalonians. Why, why is this book in the Bible? Why was it written? And we'll start with um, the author, which is Paul. There's a beautiful picture of him. That's kind of how I like to think of Paul laboring at his epistles. This letter was written on his second journey, which um, that's really hard to see, but in purple, Paul goes, and right there, a little circle is Thessalonica, and uh, Paul kind of had a rough one. Well, all of them were hard, but in this one, the the pattern to me, Paul would go into a town, he would preach the gospel, and there would be a riot, and then Paul would have to leave with some of his friends and run to another town where Paul would preach the gospel. Some people would believe there'd be another riot, and he would have to move on. And that's why Gary always believes that a proper sermon should result in revival or a riot, or both. And I trust we'll have revival this morning. Um, Paul ends up being in Athens, the capital of Greece down here. And it's about six months after he left Thessalonica. He was in Thessalonica a very short period of time, had to run. A lot of things happened, but uh, he's in Athens six months after he was in Thessalonica, and he he hears some reports about what's going on in the church, and he writes this very short letter back to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica itself is uh, a very big uh, cosmopolitan city. It's a port city. It's on the coast. It's on the main trade route up north into central Europe. It links to the Danube River. It's a rich uh, it's the capital of Macedonia, which is a Roman state. So this is a big town. This is, you know, a Seattle, at least in context, sized city. It's a very multicultural, very uh, interesting as a Roman colony. And Paul's writing back to this church, which is a new church. And I can't emphasize that part enough because that will come up a lot. But this is a, a young church. Uh, the church initially was formed of a lot of women. Uh, the Jewish in origin, and then the church has grown a little bit, and it's got a lot of Gentiles, and they're, they're pretty young in their faith. And they've got the questions that people young in their faith have. Paul had, I think, three purposes of writing this letter, and these are worth kind of keeping notes because, again, context is everything. If I'm saying anything that doesn't agree with the kind of the purpose of the letter, that's a problem. His purposes were three. One was to encourage believers. Second one is to instruct believers in how to godly living, how to live your life as a believer, which I like to hear that a lot. That's very helpful for me. And the third one is to um, give believers hope. I'll come back to that, that giving believers hope. A young church, I guess specifically, uh, they were worried. They thought they, they understood they accepted Christ and that Christ would come back for them. And they thought that meant like right now or like really soon. And so they were kind of the equivalent of, I think we were discussing this morning, they were packing their bags, and they were ready to go. And then they said, well, what if I die before Christ comes back? What happens to me? This was a huge deal. This was very, very powerful fear for them. And so Paul's addressing those concerns. Um, the key verse for me of the, the whole book is uh, 2.12. 
encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. That's a good verse. Live lives worthy of God. The book has a very specific structure. It's got five chapters. In fact, I'd love to go through this whole book. It would take a long time, but it would be fun to preach through the whole thing. But it talks about salvation, your service as a Christian. It deals with how do you deal with sorrow, your sanctification. And the last chapter is kind of about remembering things and being strong-minded. And if you notice the alliteration there, each chapter starts with kind of an S, and we could make that look good. That'd be fun. If we're going to take a look at this, we want to look at just chapter 5. Chapter 5's got a part about sanctification, a part about godly living, and that it ends with this wonderful benediction. We're going to take a look at the verse. What does it say? We're going to talk about what does the verse mean, and then we'll talk about what do we do with learning this stuff. Let's start with the verse. So let's split this. We're just going to look at one verse today. Split this into three parts and kind of organize it like that. So we have a therefore. Yes, I'm on. It has a red light. I'm going to keep talking, though. I have a loud voice. If I have to, I can bellow. Uh, The second part has two commands in it, and then there's a third part, which we'll call grammatically. Verses back up into the wow. Um, look in your chapter right above that. You'd see that it's mostly about salvation. That's kind of cool that we sang about that today. It's mostly about salvation. And here's where Paul's coming from. He's writing to this church that's really worried about what happens to them if they die before Christ comes back for them. What's going to happen? And so Paul's reminding them about the joy of their salvation, that they have been saved. And, uh, and the end times, there's some pretty good doctrine that's simple to, I think, understand about kind of what happens at the end of everything. And they call it in theological terms, the fancy word is eschatology. But the therefores, Paul's saying, you're saved. You can have assurance in that, that you're saved. This is what it means to be saved. You have a hope, and hope is not wishful thinking. The hope is a promise, a guaranteed promise that you are saved, you will be in heaven, that Christ will come back to you. You might not know when, might not be tomorrow, it might be a surprise, but he's coming back for you. And so the therefore has a lot to do with kind of setting the context of the chapter about your salvation, to be assured in it, to rejoice in it, and act like you believe it, to remember that salvation when you, you have actions. Our friends from Macau, I think, do understand that just a little bit better because I don't know if it's their younger church, they're more expressive than we are. There's a difference there that the joy comes out quickly. And I think as we've tried to incorporate testimonies into our services more and more over the last few months, really, that's important because it's his work in us that is an absolute miracle, that there is a power 
to testimony that goes beyond anything we can guess at. Talking about it this morning, we were discussing a couple of the men before we had service, we pray, talking about the testimonies that we heard from our Macau friends and even from one another and the emotion that's created that we were tearing up discussing it because testimony has power. We have something that goes far beyond us. And you might not think you have a great story, but your testimony of what God has done inside you is a miracle. It's as big a miracle as parting Red Seas and curing cancers and destroying mountains and overturning kingdoms. It is a miracle if you were saved from a life of sin and you will not die. You will be with heaven, with our Lord forever and ever. That is a miracle. And Americans... I think we don't like to show a lot of emotion. Okay, as an American, I don't like to show a lot of emotion. I won't speak for the rest of you, but I, that to me, some, it, that, like, wow, I need to kind of think about that. Paul talks about it in one way in, in the upper part of the, the book in chapter 2. For this reason, that you're saved, for this reason, we also constantly thank God when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it. And not as the word of men, but as it it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work by those who believe. We testify to his work in us, not anything we do. Now, we testify. We do. And I'm not saying that as a church we're somehow a bunch of robots going through. We do, but maybe we're not as intentional. Maybe we're not as expressive as what we see with a younger church. Maybe not as joyfully. But think about this, that verse there in Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, that the word was sent out. This church, 1986, 1987, close enough, 1980s, we sent two people from small towns to Macau with the word. Our church was a part of that. Maybe a small part, maybe a little bit bigger, but we were a part of that. These two people, the Mayhews, with their family, took the word to Macau. There was no Christian church in Macau. The word had an effect on people in Macau. The word with the people in Macau have come back to our church to encourage us, to inspire us. You know how few churches can say that? To be able to see that with their eyes, not from the heavenly perspective? How few churches get a chance to see that circle completed in their own lifetime? That's a miracle. I would sing the circle of life right now, but that'd be a bad idea. But it's a circle. It's a great thing. It's Thessalonians kind of put to life, and we get to watch it. Anyway, that's what the therefore is there for. So let's take a look at verbs. Encourage and build up. Now, if you've listened to Gary long enough, you will know that when Paul uses a verb, verbs are important, that that's something, the the action word here, that's a big deal. That's something we need to pay close attention to. So we'd like to define those kind of carefully. Encourage and build up. Let's start with encourage because that's the first one. Now, encourage, a lot of people go, oh, I get this one. Encourage, to put courage into somebody. No. Not that that's not a nice way to understand it, but that's not the word. That's not what it means. Here's what it means. The simplest, to come alongside someone. To come alongside. Now, 
putting courage into the person isn't a bad way to look at that, but it really deals with this personal relationship to be next to somebody. Who are we doing this to? Who's going to do it? We are. You are. I am. We're the you. That's us. And who are we doing it to? One another. Hey, this is kind of weird. It's something I'm doing, and it's something you're doing, and we do it with each other. We'll come back to that. Let's start with this therefore again. We did that. Encourage. There we go. That's the slide I was looking for. To call to one side. Going a little further in the definition, if you're taking notes, to personally exhort, to personally teach, to personally console and strengthen. And I like the word strengthen there. To personally strengthen, to come alongside of that person. Now, primarily, this is verbal. This is something you do with your mouth. This is not just verbally, but mostly verbally. And it's personal. You don't biblically encourage from a TV preacher. You, you may be encouraged by that, but the, the biblical, this is a one-on-one kind of thing. This is something you do and is done and we all do together. It's enabling somebody to do something. It's done by the other. It's done with the other. It's done to you. You do it to them. And this is the part I can't stress enough. It's positive. It's a positive thing. It's not a negative. It's not a correction thing, your encouraging is always going to be positive. It's a command. The, the parts of speech, the grammar, this is a, a command. It's not a suggestion. You do this. And you do it with someone, and you do it all the time. This is something supposed to be what you do as a person, as a Christian, not just something you do once in a while. It's continual. You don't stop doing it. And it's, a, it's used a lot in the Bible, like 110 times in the New Testament. A good example to encourage somebody is teaching a small child how to snow ski. Isn't that adorable, Krista? That's you right there. <laughs> Four-year-old kid, this adorable little jacket learning to ski. Now, if I yelled at her more than I did already um, to ski, she would not like that. She would not think skiing's good if she's getting yelled at all the time. She's going to hate skiing, so you've got to be positive. I'm going to encourage her. But maybe this is the part that gets lost. I can't do it for her. Vanjie can't ski for her. I'm teaching someone else to do something. I'm teaching somebody to, to, to be encouraged is to help them do it themselves. It's this interactive thing, but it's them doing it themselves. It's also worth noting that Paul doesn't use this term as an office of the church. If you're a Christian, you don't say to yourself, oh, encouragement is part of the encourager. The church encourager will do the encouraging, and I can relax on that. There is no church encourager. There's no office like elder or deacon. It's something we all do. We're all called to that. It's not a specific thing. It's something we all do. It's mutual. If, um, if you have a King James Bible, oops, wow, its natural state is to fall to the ground, I guess. Um, if you have a King James Bible, instead of saying encourage one another, it says comfort yourselves together. To get the idea that there's this this mutual thing, and comfort's a big part of that, but it's it's a mutual thing we do. Ever heard the phrase, if you need a friend, be a friend? Same idea, okay? You don't wait passively. You go do, and you will be encouraged by that. 
It's never passive. We'll come back to that a little bit. And let's look at the second verb, to build up. Now, build up is pretty easy to understand. There's the literal meaning to construct a house, to build up things. And then there's the metaphoric meaning, which Paul, the author, loves to use that, to build up in the inner man, to build you up inside, to strengthen you the way you would construct a house, to found someone, like give them a foundation, to establish someone, to grow, to teach, to, uh, I like the word edify because it's a fancy word. Again, this is verbal, mostly, not just verbal, but mostly verbal, and it's done by the other in this mutual relationship again, to build someone up. Um, Paul uses this a lot. And again, it's a command. You do it now. You do it always. You don't stop doing it. You're always supposed to be building people up. There's not a church builder-upper office. It's just like encouraged, okay? Finding an example for this is pretty simple. I used to coach football, and I, I still do a lot of sports stuff and like sports. But if you're old enough, you might remember the Newt Rocking story, black and white, Ronald Reagan, Notre Dame. Win one for the Gipper. Coach, when the brakes are getting the boys, you tell them to get out there and win one for the Gipper. Okay, Ronald Reagan's first big role, by the way. Uh, if you're of my generation, you'll remember this movie, which is Rudy. Um, strangely, two Notre Dame movies, both with a good example. Anyways, a coach encouraging and building up the players. This is Dan Devine telling the guys that no one, and I mean no one, comes into our house and pushes us around. And everybody's like, ah! And all the guys go outside, and they win the football game, and Rudy, and they tear it off. Most men right now are tearing up a little bit on the inside remembering Rudy, and their wives are making fun of them. Um, it's the one weakness we all have as men, as Rudy causes us to tear. Anyways, the coach is building up the players. He is strengthening them with positive encouragement, with positive things to build them up. Um, you don't tear down the team to get them to do better. You might need to do that in practice, but building up biblically is to build people up personal. It's one-on-one. That coach is physically there with them, and it's a positive thing. Now, there are lots of counterexamples to building up people. Just about any protest movement, and I don't care how good the cause, you can't find a protester who is an idiot and makes the protest about themselves. I've seen animal rights protesters, and the, the message I got from them is these people care a lot about animals. Um, there are church groups that protest. They talk about what they're against. They talk about what they hate. This group, you may be familiar with, the Westboro Baptist Church, and I hesitate to use the term church with them, but they have a very specific thing they protest against, and their way of doing that is to go, they are very much against uh, gay marriage. And their way of protesting is to go to a military funeral and tell the family of their burying their loved one who died in the nation's service that God killed your son or daughter because our country allows whatever with marriage. That's the message of their church. I've been to Sunday school. I'm an educated man. I can't find in the Bible where it ever says anything about how God hates anybody. That is the opposite. That is pure hate. That is hate. That is hate and pride and selfishness and is being used by Satan, not by God. This is what encouragement looks like. This is what building up one another looks like. This is Joy, who is with us. She's out at the youth group. They're talking. They're sharing around a table. Kids from two completely different cultures talking about how much they love God and what God has done in each one of their lives. What's the outcome of that talk? 
Ask anybody that was in the youth group. Ask the youth group leaders. Ask Joy. Positive. Closer to God. Closer to one another. Nothing but positive comes when we're building one another up. Nothing comes from negative when we talk about what we don't like. That's what it says. Now, there's this third bit, the last bit, just as you're also doing. And that's an interesting way to look at that. Look at just the just as you were also doing. Now, Paul's not telling the church at Thessalonica, you guys stink. You guys don't encourage people. You don't build anybody up. No, he's saying, hey, you're doing it. Keep doing it. This is important. I dare say Paul's encouraged them. Paul's building them up while he's telling them to be an encourager and to build one another up. He's saying, you're doing good. And that's maybe the message we have today for us. We're not, as Grace Point, we're not shallow with our faith. We're not unexpressive. Maybe we can do a little better job, though. Maybe we can excel still more. To whom do we do this? One another. Plural. Interdependent. Mutuality. Sharing equally. We're called to build up one another so that both parties benefit. When you encourage, you will be encouraged. When you build up somebody, you will be built up. Easy to overlook that. The Macau team did not come here to encourage us. They did. They did not come here to be encouraged. They were. We did this together. This is about both of us encouraging each other, and we both win. There's lots of examples of people who are good at doing things, and they get a little benefit out of it. If you talk to the Stevens Ministry people, they help others through times. Not an easy job. Very high calling. Great love for one another. But I dare say through the middle of what could be very difficult circumstances, both the minister and the person being ministered to are mutually encouraged. I like the lifeguard at our pool to kind of keep my fingers in what goes on. The greatest adrenaline rush I've ever had in my life. Better than racing cars or skiing, pulling a kid out of the water that's going down. You you talk about a rush. That's a benefit to me. I like that. That's exciting. I'm a benefit of that. Sharing our testimony. It should be very similar to that. Encouraging one another is encouraging. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with old, old Puritan, a guy by the name Thomas Watson. He was talking about this with his church in, I dare say, the 16s, uh, first start of the date. But Thomas Watson, the Puritan, used the image of a running race. And he says this. In other races, many times, one runner will hinder another. But in the race to heaven, one Christian helps another. One Christian helps by his prayer, his advice, and example to confirm another. What is the fellowship of saints but one Christian helping another towards a heavenly race? So we watch the Olympics, one gold medal. In the church, lots of gold medals. All of us get gold medals. We help one another. That's what it means. So, coming towards the meaning, impact. 
our lives touch one another. Sometimes shallowly, sometimes deeply, but we have impact on one another. And that's the purpose we have for one another. Let me start with the example and then take it into the meaning of this on meaning. One of the bravest men you can ever study in history. Oh, whoops. One another. Okay, we covered that. Bravest men you'll ever study about in history. One of the most surpassing ball players and athletes of any sport of all time was Jack Roosevelt Robinson. First integrated, well, in the modern era, to integrate baseball. Had to endure torments. Had to endure the worst racism our country could throw at one person and not lash back. That's a different kind of bravery. Took it. Did well. It's the only number retired on every major league ball team in America. There's a Jack Robinson Day. Jack Robinson is in the Hall of Fame. He has had movie after movie and story after story told about him. Just about every American schoolboy knows the story of Jackie Robinson. His tombstone. This one of the greatest ball players of all time, certainly the bravest of all time. His tombstone has 15 words on it. Robinson. And then 14 other ones that listen to. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. We all have an impact on one another. Are we intentional about the impact? Because when we're not intentional, sometimes our impact is not the impact we want it to have. When I get busy and I'm brusque and I'm in a hurry, I can blow right past something and have an impact that's not so good. When we take time to share something with someone, to be the kind words, the encouragement, the build up, we can have an incredibly positive impact on somebody. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians, I believe, challenges us to have the positive impact on one another, challenges us to think about how intentional we are with the impact we have on each other because we're going to have the impact. If we are intentional, it will probably be the impact we want it to have. I met a couple girls last week that had just been baptized. The joy on their face had a huge impact on me. It was so delightful to meet these girls. It was the same impact that our churches from Macau, I think, had on most of us. I don't know if you listen when you're worshiping. Sometimes I have the advantage of I have to click the clicker thing, and I, I can kind of pay attention to other things. We had testimony, and then we worshiped. The worship we had after listening to testimonies was different, empowered, louder, more passionate. It had an impact on us, and we're having an impact on others. Speaking of impact, you remember this guy? Alphonse Penu, the planiform, 1870, selling toys. Let me tell you a little bit more about his story. He did put on demonstrations with these things and other ones, like that one in the middle that kind of looks like an airplane, but if you know anything about airplanes, you know that's not going to work well. He had one that had the bottom one. It was like a mechanical bird, rubber band. The wings would flap, and you can imagine what that would look like as he puts this on for millionaire investors in France. Didn't go well. He never got his investment for a human-sized rubber band-powered airplane. And as much as I'd love to, again, have a little fun with that, in 1880, Alphonse Pinot took his own life. 
he died penniless, alone, completely despondent that he never flew like a hawk. He was a, a victim, in some ways, of technology, but also of lack of encouragement. But let's go to the bishop. Remember the bishop in Ohio? The bishop had boys. He wanted to give the boys something positive to play with, and he used a kind of planiform, rubber band-powered little thing. He wanted to inspire his boys, and he was right. The planiform did inspire his boys because the bishop was right. And so were his sons. It was just the right toy at just the right time for just the right brothers. Orville Wilbur Wright, inspired by a throwaway toy in 17th of December, 1903, Kill Devil Hill, took the right flyer on a 120-foot, 12-foot-high flight a flight that changed the entire world. A flight, ironically, that wouldn't go halfway across the wingspan of a modern Boeing, but still, first time powered flight had ever happened. The Wright brothers had a tremendous impact on the world, and Alphonse Penault had a tremendous impact on the Wright brothers, but he never knew about it. A father with a toy, a toy maker looking to soar like a hawk, two boys inspired to make powered flight, all about impact of life, encouragement of life, building up of life on one another. And we could stop there and say, that's a nice little story. Clever wordplay, Wright Brothers, toy, nice, they were encouraged, fine. But think about Alphonse Penault. Alphonse Penault never lived to see this. He should have been. How joyful would he have been to see, oh, it's internal combustion, not a rubber band. How joyful would it have been to see his vision put in the finest museum in the whole land for permanent display, to see an entire industry of transportation all from his desire to soar like a hawk. And who knows, if he had lived, he would have been approximately 55 when the Wright brothers flew. He might have been able to soar like a hawk had he been encouraged, had he been built up, had he had the positive impact of another life on him. I, I don't know a lot about his life. I don't know if he was a church or was a Christian or who was around him or what his whole story was. He's kind of one of those guys that, at least in my experience, is a little bit lost. But that comes back to the central question. What is the role of the believer in the community? And here's the central answer for those of you taking notes. To glorify God by encouraging, and building up one another. To build up one another and in that way glorify God. That's what the verse says. That's what the verse means. And here's what we ask now. It's called, so what? So there's this verse in the Bible. talks about encouragement and building up. So what? We got a nice little story about the Wright brothers. Didn't know that. That's nice. We could leave here now a little smarter, Right? But we're supposed to do something with what we learn. And I can't do that. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. How to apply what you've heard. Application is up to you. That's your wrestle with the Holy Spirit about what do you do about that. 
I will tell you what I've learned because sometimes that can inspire you to think about different things. But what I'm going to tell you now is my take on things not coming out of the gospel. This is just my personal observation and what it's done to me. Here's us and some of our connections with people. That's a good-looking group of people up there. That's kind of cool. Our church is a collection of individuals. It's only the relationships that bind us together, starting with the vertical relationship we have with God. That's common. And then there's this relationship with one another. And the one another's go all sorts of different ways. There's webs in here and webs overseas and webs with family, family members that believe, that don't believe, separated by geography, time, place, etc. But we all have a common bond, and it's the relationships that are important. And it's relationships that I guess I want to apply. And there's a couple gut check questions. You're having an impact on one another. I'm having an impact on people. And the first gut question, gut check question I had for me is, what am I known for? That's my impact. The collective, what am I known for? Am I a positive person? Am I a negative person? Am I the guy that whines? Am I the guy that does whatever? What am I known for? What are you known for? The second question is the one I wrestle with as an elder. What's Grace Point known for? We're having an impact on our community. What is it? Do we think about the intentionality of our impact on the community? Or do we just, you know, kind of hope it's good? Do we kind of live our lives well, godly, and people will see that and be drawn to that? That's not bad, but maybe that's not what Paul's talking about and calming alongside people personally to encourage and build them up. Those are good gut check questions. And the funny thing about this is all about relationships. And I am not the relationship guy. On the elder team, I'm a planner. I'm a project guy. I'm kind of like to do things. Greg's the relationship guy. That's why I love Greg. He's such a great brother. He's the relationship guy. And then I get teaching on the Bible the last year and a half. Every lesson has come down to relationships. Every time. Almost like God's telling me something. And then you people... I have a problem with some of you. You send me to Macau to work on relationships with this group. And it changed me. How dare you? <laughs> what are you doing meddling with my life with that kind of stuff? It's relationships that all comes down to. And as a church, you can't be all outward looking and don't take care of one another on the inside. But you can't be all inside or predominantly inside and, and ignore the other side. There's got to be kind of a balance there. And there's a lot going on at Grace Point. And it's all pretty exciting. As elders, we get to see all the little bits. We try to share with you on Sunday mornings, every now and then, just a little glimpse of one ministry, one little slice of things going on, so that you can see a little bit of all the different things that God's working on us on. But in my life, as an elder, it's really, a lot of it has been down to, I think we need to be a little more outward focused. I need to be a lot more outward focused. I need to have this vision of my impact and being intentional with the impact on others. And so I've got four ways to apply this, and they go kind of in order. Application one leads to application two, at least application three, and all that. First one, for me, is remembering the joy of my salvation. Remembering that God performed a miracle on me when he took me out of a life of sin when I was 14. That's huge that I was saved in my life. Huge, nothing bigger. Huge, or your Trump supporter, I'll, huge. 
It's a big deal. that you're, And remembering the joy of that salvation, that it is a miracle, changes me. That changes how I interact with people. It keeps me very humble, but it also gives me an excitement, a happiness that is a lot better than shouting at people about what I don't like in life, which is number two. I always want to be the person that speaks for things. That came right out of this scripture and hit me right in the center of the eyes. No one cares what I don't like. No one. I can post things online. I can talk about what I don't like, about how much I hate that. That Being mad is now an industry in America. There are several TV networks that their whole goal is to make you mad or scared or both, and they're making money off of us. There are websites that encourage it. I I have to read some of them for news stories. It's a culture of outrage. Be outraged. Be mad about things. I can't even tell you how many times I had a person filming me this week about how mad they were about something that if I shared it, you might roll your eyes just a little bit. People want to be mad. And we have a, a society that encouraged both being outraged and a victim at the same time. And it doesn't get us anywhere. And I would say that if what happens to me, if you find yourself making lists, if you find yourself having conversations in your head with people where you're right and they're really wrong, and that feels good, you know what I'm talking about? I do that. That's not good. That's not good to be ready to be mad and confront somebody. That doesn't do anybody any good. No one cares what I'm against. People might be interested in what I love and what I'm for. I want to speak about the things I'm for. Best president we ever had, Teddy Roosevelt, said this, probably. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, you've heard that. I don't know if he actually said that. I can't find an attribution to that, but it's a good phrase. And it works for number two. Be for things. Be the person who's not giving in to the drug of being outraged. Don't be addicted to outrage. Third one, relationships don't happen on their own. Be intentional. Relationships have to be worked at. I can tell you from being married for 20-some-odd years now that you've got to keep working at that. It's got to be intentional. It doesn't just happen on its own. And it can be stupid stuff. I mean, work has to be done. Chores have to be done, yeah. But if you can incorporate an idea of a relationship in it, it's great. Krista, when I wake her up at 4 in the morning to help shovel the sidewalk when it snows in the winter, she's only too happy to come out and work on a relationship together as we shovel snow. You know, it's easy. It's no big deal. Just be intentional. Yeah, work at it. I don't think it's promised that we have easy relationships, but they take work, and it's worth it, so much worth it to be intentional. Um, at work, in your life group, at church, be intentional and, and try to improve the relationship. I dare say the other relationship that you always want to try to improve and work at is this one. Okay, The closer we get to our Lord, a lot of the relationships on the, the horizontal level are so much easier. When I'm being an idiot with friends, it's usually because I'm ignoring somebody else. Fourth one, lifeguard each other, meaning be an encourager. Seek to be the encourager and seek to find the person who needs encouragement. And when you're seeking to encourage somebody else, you shall be encouraged. That's true. I can testify that in my life that is absolutely true. The near context to this is 
in the church. Within the church, we should be encouraging one another, and you should be the encourager to others. Don't be the victim. Don't be the passive person. When you need it, it'll come, but don't be the person that waits. Go out and be the encourager. But the far context is the one that is in my head since about April. When I was in Macau, thank you very much. What are we doing here as a church? I mean, we have a lot of things we're doing. We have a mission statement, and we're doing them. But why did God put this church in Grant County? What's our impact out here? We've got a missions program. It needs to be growing. It needs to be bigger. But what are we doing? Why are we here as a church and thinking about that? To be a church known as being encouragers, to be builder-uppers. That's a word. Alphonse Panot. He might be sitting next to you at work. Alphonse Panot might be next to you at the ball game. Alphonse Panot could be sitting next to you right now to be the lifeguard, to look to encourage and build up one another. We are called, we are empowered to be encouragers. So go encourage. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this time that we've been able to have. We thank you that by your spirit we can worship you to proclaim your name, to teach one another, to encourage and build up one another. And that's only because of your Holy Spirit within ourselves that you put in there when you saved each one of us from sin. And Father, this morning as we uh, go to now a time to worship who and what you are, how great, how awesome you are in our lives, let our worship inspire each other. Let our worship be known throughout this community, and Father, use Grace Point for your purposes, both here in Grant County and across the seas. We ask that this morning, Father, in the name of your perfect Son, who is our Holy Savior. Amen.